Can governments make people good? It's been tried many, many times. But all it comes down to is hours and hours in courts and thousands of pounds in legal fees. It's happening right now. Property developers cannot be legislated to care for the people whose homes they're creating. I met one who is trying to at a wedding recently, and he says he just gets trampled over by all the avaricious people who don't care, who see regulations as things to be got around. In the end, most people, not all, there are people in this church who are in that industry and are doing it wonderfully, but most people, it's about making as much money as possible. Paying more money so someone else has a better experience or so the people who live in the thing you're building on is going to have a better experience. That's just a bad business decision, isn't it? Governance, red tape, is a stick to beat people with and try and make people stay in limits of how much they're going to exploit each other. It can't make people love each other. That's obvious, isn't it? That's obvious. But it doesn't stop church getting sucked into the same way of thinking. It's in Corinth. Listen to this. When one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Maybe we think no Christian would ever do that. No Christian would ever do that. Well, The Episcopal Church in North America, a whole denomination, has over the last two decades spent nearly $52 million fighting over buildings with people who disagree with the direction that the leadership has taken. They're still part of our denomination. They're us. All the judges they were bringing these people before were secular courts. Same situation could happen in this country. A lot of deanery conversations that I'm involved with at the moment stray into arguments about money. No lawsuits yet that I'm aware of, but the spirit is there. We've been going through a series in this letter that Paul writes to a church in Greece. And the title we've had is Seeing with Jesus' Eyes. And through this section of Paul doing that, He brings that foolish wisdom of the cross of Jesus that he began with right down into all the decisions we make every day. And it's the things that we regard as most serious. Money, sex, power. These are the areas where we really find out what we believe about all that religious stuff. If Jesus isn't visible in these areas, we're guilty. Chapter 4, verse 20, if you flick over the page of making the kingdom of God a lot of talk. The temptation for us and for the Corinthians is to live as practical atheists. We talk a good game, but when it comes to how we actually live, all the things that really grab our attention, well, we might as well be atheists for all the difference believing in God makes. There's a prayer in the Church of England, we prayed it last week, that puts what we're doing in these next few sections like this. The prayer is that we so pass through things temporal 
that we lose not our hold on things eternal. So the first way we can do that, verse two and three, after the introduction, Jesus raises our responsibility into eternity. Jesus raises our responsibility into eternity. Uh, Throughout this chapter, and we're going to look at it next week as well, Paul is constantly saying, don't you realise? Don't you realise? He's constantly saying there's a bunch of stuff you should know that if you really did know, you wouldn't be living this way. So it's verse 2, 3, 9, 15, 16, 19. You can check if you want. Don't you realise? Don't you realise? The implication is that, okay, fine, they say they believe stuff, but they're getting stuck in a way of living that denies it. And the first two don't you realise bits, verse 2 and 3, maybe actually as we look at it, we don't realise, because we don't really talk about this very much. We certainly don't live as if verse 2 and 3 were true. Uh, do get a Bible open if you can, it will help. Uh, you should have been given one as you came in, if not, you can get me your phone. Uh, so verse 2 and 3, those first don't you realise is. Uh, Paul's talking actually about what it really means for Christians to be called sons of God. Do you remember that Abba Father song? Are we called God Abba? Being sons of God? Well, this means something slightly different from what we might think. Here's a little sample of teaching from Jesus on this topic. You can write down the notes if you want. Check, I'm not making it up. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. And this is actually our benefit vision verse. Jesus will fix everything, which is like my paraphrase of it. Uh, so Jesus says this to the disciples. I assure you that in the regeneration, when I fix everything, that's the paraphrase, when the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Judging, making decisions in the new creation. Or Luke's gospel, chapter 12, verse 32, says this same people and a bunch of other hangers-on. Don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Luke chapter 19, verse 17. Well done. You're a good servant, says Jesus. You've been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. So you'll be governor of 10 cities as a reward. Luke 20, 36. And this is about the church in the resurrection, the end of days when Jesus comes. Jesus describes us like this. For they can't die anymore, for they're equal to angels and sons of God being sons of the resurrection. All these passages are taking Old Testament ideas about something called the heavenly council. The Trinity have billions of created but immortal beings who serve them constantly. Heaven is not empty. And some of them, the Bible tells us, are delegated by Jesus to manage things in the creation. There is an angel who is responsible for the thunderstorm that's about to happen. I'm convinced about that. There is an angel who's responsible for making sure the sun rises every morning or the wind blows or the seasons turning around each year or even the whole element of fire every time there's a fire or the stars. Many passages in scripture suggest each star is managed in some way by an angel. 
Some of them only are responsible for one Christian. Guardian angels are real. They're in the Bible. But the promise in the Bible is that those who are glorified through living as Jesus' disciples, dying and trusting in him, are promoted in the heavenly council, the heavenly government, to positions above all these created, immortal, non-human heavenly beings. That's why, you know, churches are named after saints. Ours isn't, Holy Trinity, we just went straight to the top. I don't understand that theologically. I'm still trying to work out why we're Holy Trinity and there's like St. John's and all that. Uh, but the patron saint, they believed when they named it after that, was in heaven saying, all right, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be interested in that lot. There's a whole load of other churches, but I'm going to be interested in that one. That they're responsible for things. They're actually doing things now, deciding how things unfold in this world and one day in the world to come. And there's loads to look at in this. If, you're, if this is weird to you, please ask me afterwards. Please look into it yourself. But it is a Bible idea. It's just one that we've forgotten. And all the specifics might sound weird to us. But the consistent teaching of the Bible is that to be a glorified human being, someone who passes through things temporal so as not to lose hold on things eternal, is to be given eternal responsibility. Both in this current age, like the saints are doing now in heaven, and in the new creation age to come. So if we've got that to look forward to, why are we getting tripped up over a few thousand pounds here or there, or a bit of property, or the terms of a contract? That's trivial for Christians. It doesn't matter. Either way, it doesn't matter. To insist our own brothers and sisters be forced to behave in the right way by appealing to governments or laws is to act like nothing we say we believe in really exists. Now, it doesn't mean money doesn't matter. Jesus is clear about that too. He says if we can't handle our money and are stealing and cheating from everybody else, we're in no position to do that. That's the basic level. That's like 101, how you're responsible. But the reason is not because that stuff matters. It's because we're going to deal with stuff that really does matter one day. If we obsess about this trivial stuff to the degree that we get courts involved... We're in a disastrous spiritual state. Jesus raises our responsibility into eternity. Next up, verse four to six. It is shameful for church to fight about money. It is shameful for church to fight about money. Paul writes to this same church in 2 Corinthians, actually, saying he doesn't want them to be ashamed. But this issue is so serious and so at odds with everything they say they believe that he explicitly says, verse 5, I am saying this to shame you. He doesn't pronounce on who's right in the lawsuit. Maybe we expect him to do that. We say, just give all the money to him. Give all the land to her. He, he doesn't say that. He adopts the same attitude as Jesus. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Listen to this. Teacher, please tell my brother to divide my father's estate with me. Like that's millions of pounds maybe. And we're like, oh yeah, okay, this is really serious. Jesus is definitely going to have an opinion about that. What does he say? 
friend, who made me judge over you to decide such things as that? I don't care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me. The thing that you need to watch out for, mate, listen, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Now, remember, Paul's not saying that if someone is rapacious and greedy and stealing from everybody, that you just take it lying down. We, we dealt with that. That was last week. Someone who claimed to be a Christian and was greedy and cheating everyone. You, you say, no, you're not part of this. You need to go out of this until you've sorted that out and repented. There is a role for church discipline for saying someone who consistently steals from other people is publicly identified as not part of the church. There are serious financial safeguards that the PCC and I have to deal with with the money that comes into this church. And if I am taking from the collection plate, I should go to jail. And I expect you to enforce that if that ever happens. But this situation isn't like that. There is a wrong that's been done by someone to someone but it's not exactly clear how it's happened. We don't have to think very hard to imagine how that could happen. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. In fact, we get into the situations like that all the time. We tell of, you know, utilities and whatever and all that. So a joint claim on a contract or a landlord and a tenant, they say, I am following my contract. And the tenant say, no, you're not. You should have, you know, fixed the tumble dryer or something. You know, uh, they have them in Corinth, obviously. Um, so some business deal where a party feels they've been badly treated and the other saying, nope, I did exactly what I should have done. That kind of stuff, you know? Paul takes attention away from all the tit for tat and he said, she said stuff and looks at the whole picture and simply says litigation is not the way Christians settle things with each other. We don't rely on that blunt instrument of government to make people do things. Our goal with each other is not to extract the maximum amount of money that the law requires. Our goal is to love each other sacrificially, to be generous to each other. Now, we can't expect to have that kind of relationship with people outside the church. That's what the bit about foreigners was in Deuteronomy, if you were wondering about that. Sometimes people outside church will steal from us and defraud us. And in those instances, we and they need to obey the law. Though even then, there are opportunities we can be generous because after all, money stuff isn't the ultimate thing, is it? We don't worship it like people who are outside the church do. Uh, So here's an example. Um, Someone I know was involved in a car accident with someone who actually went to the same church. One party was clearly at fault. It would have been within the law for the wronged party to pursue the maximum claim on the insurance. As it turned out, the person in the wrong offered to pay for any damage. And in the end, the car wasn't really that badly damaged. So they said, oh, don't worry about it. It was all over. And the relationship was restored and they were part of church together. Most legal things exist because people don't love each other, don't trust each other. The vision of the church life is we can be people who aren't constantly trying to get one up on each other. And it means it's shameful if we drag each other down to the sorry state of bickering claims and counterclaims that we all have to live in the rest of the time. We are free to love each other, even when it costs us. It's shameful for church to fight about money. And last, verse 7 to 8. Jesus sometimes teaches eternity 
by us losing money. Jesus sometimes teaches eternity by us losing money. Paul finally asks the warring Corinthians, what would be so bad about not getting justice in this situation? What would you really lose if you let it go? Verse 7, why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? We've all seen the public messy divorce trials where the credibility of the defendant or the claimant is lost in a bit of vindictiveness on public display. Remember, the Corinthians were claiming to be really religious, really scholarly, really wise, deeply versed in the mysteries of Jesus and spiritual reality. Paul's exposing that as rubbish by looking at how they handle money with each other. Verse 7, beginning. Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Sometimes the only way Jesus can teach us about the value of eternity is by us losing our hold on some temporal benefit. The times when money really matters are the times when we're the ones who attempted to do the cheating. The warnings are very severe through the scriptures there. But listen from that Old Testament reading, Deuteronomy 15, verse 9. So powerful. You can turn to it if you want. It's page 162. Verse 9, Deuteronomy 15. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone alone because the year for cancelling debts is close at hand. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly. Here's the reason. For the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Christians can't be ultimately, in a big sense, bean counters. To have a clear view of the eternal worth of Jesus, sometimes we have to let things go that ultimately don't matter to us in the grand scheme of eternity. This is an opportunity for us as church. We can be a rebuke to those in the Church of England now who obsess about money. We don't need to insist on getting our money's worth from the diocese all the time, even if there may need to be a conversation about that. We don't need to insist on it. We can afford to be generous in order that ministry here can continue. And challenge me to put my money where my mouth is on that. I'm ready to take up a part-time job in order to continue to minister here if the diocese decide we're not paying enough for them to give me a stipend. I'm ready to do that. It just doesn't matter that much. It's not important. The stuff we're into is bigger than money. We can afford to be generous. But we also want to bear witness to everyone in Bungie. There are things in life and eternity that matter more than money. There's one quotation I wanted to give you just as we come to the end. This is from Charles Dickens. Okay, anyone read Bleak House or at least seen the Gillian Anderson one? 
Okay. Oh, some people have. I, you never know. Okay. So uh, the, the big thing in this book is there's a legal case that is going on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And there are multiple generations of people who stand to gain from the case when it's finally sorted out. And you follow the story of two wards. So people who don't have any parents, but are claimants in the case. And this is what one of them, who ends up married to the other, says. And he says it about someone else in the case who also stands to gain, but has been nothing but kind to him. Here we go. So this is the one who stands to gain, talking about one of the others who stands to gain. I tell him honourably, you are to know, I've written to him about all this, that we are at issue, and that we had better be at issue openly than covertly. I thank him for his goodwill and his protection, and he goes his road and I go mine. The fact is, our roads are not the same. Under one of the wills in dispute, I should take much more than he. I don't mean to say that it is the one to be established, but there it is, and it has its chance. I have not to learn from you, my dear Richard, said I, of your letter. I had heard of it already without an offended or an angry word. Indeed, I'm glad he said it was an honourable, uh, I'm glad I said he was an honourable man out of all this wretched affair. But I always say that, and I've never doubted it. Now, my dear Esther, I know these views of mine appear extremely harsh to you, and will to Ada when you tell her what has passed between us. But if you'd gone into the case as I had, if you'd only applied yourself to the papers as I did when I was at Kenji's, if you only knew what an accumulation of charges and countercharges and suspicions and cross-suspicions they involve, you would think me moderate in comparison. There's two attitudes there, aren't there? Letting it go, getting on with your life, or standing on your rights and getting eaten up in all the back and forth and arguments and laws and law print and all that kind of thing. Jesus raises our responsibility into eternity. It's shameful for church to fight about money. Jesus sometimes teaches us eternity by us losing money. Let's pray.